Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, if you're visiting this morning, my name is uh, John. I'm the student and young adult pastor here at Waterbrook Church. I'm super thankful to be able to uh, open God's word with all of you this morning. So um, before, we get, before we jump in, why don't we, why don't we pray? Father, we admit right now that unless you do a work in our hearts, uh, we won't see Jesus. We won't trust Jesus. We won't delight in Jesus. Unless you speak, O oh God, and you open up our ears, we'll remain deaf. And so, Lord, we trust and know that you are here present with us. You uh, long to make yourself known to us. So open our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, we want to behold Jesus Christ this morning. So speak to us, we pray. In his name, amen. All right, on October 28th, 1949, Jim Elliott, the uh, missionary martyr, wrote in his diary these now famous words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was a man who was absolutely gripped by the reality that life is short, Eternity is long, God is good, and souls are at stake. He was captivated by the reality that there is no greater life than going all out for Jesus. He gave his life for the sake of the mission. He lived a short life, but a life well lived. So I want to talk to you today about how Christ frees us from the fears that keep us off mission and prevent us from becoming the people he desires us to be. Uh, to recap a little bit, Luke's writing to a man named Theophilus. Uh, we don't know much about Theophilus other than Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. Uh, so he probably was a man of reputation, a uh, man held in honor and high esteem, a man who was probably pretty comfortable, right? He had the goods that life had to offer. Uh, Luke is writing this account of the life of Jesus to persuade Theophilus that it's worth it to follow Jesus, uh, that it's worth the potential risk of following Jesus. It's worth the potential cost of following Jesus. Now, we can all resonate with this, can't we? Uh, I mean, if you're anything like me, right, when we hear this quote by Jim Elliott, we get fired up and inspired. It all seems to make sense. It's like it clicks and everything is put into right perspective. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That makes sense. But then... Almost as quickly as we get fired up, we think about the actual cost. We think about what it might actually mean if we go all out for Jesus. And uh, we have this tendency to recoil, don't we? Back into our safety zones and the places where we feel comfortable. So we live in an interesting place here. Uh, just yesterday, 
I was driving in uh, St. Bonnie, and I looked up, and there's a billboard, and it says, Good news, Jesus loves you. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus shall be saved. And I'm thinking, amen, that's great. And then I'm driving in Waconia, and I drive past uh, the Lutheran Church in Waconia, and their sign says, God's power in our weakness. We go into the, the hardware store in Waconia, and uh, you hear Christian music, and there's free Bibles on a rack in there. We live in a place where it doesn't seem like there's much of a cost to follow Jesus. We live in a place where people are generally nice, pretty polite, um, respectable, basically moral. We live in a place where it seems like there's not much cost to following Jesus. So we live in this place of signs and songs and niceness and Bibles on racks and all of that, which I'm grateful for. But, but here's the thing. I was thinking about this the last couple of days. Over the six years that I've lived in this area— uh, now, I could be wrong here. My memory is not the best, but uh, outside the context of the church, I don't think there's been one person who's taken the risk to ask me if I know who Jesus is. Um, so we live in this place where we've domesticated Jesus, where we can blast out billboard signs, which is, again, I'm grateful for that, but are we willing to take the risk and get in? Are we willing to get over the potential actual cost of following Jesus? In 2005, there's this guy named uh, Christian Smith. He did this uh, research project where he uh, studied the actual beliefs of teenagers in America. Uh, Now, keep in mind, teenagers in 2005 are now adults, and they were taught by adults. So this is a pervasive kind of research project as to what the general Uh, consensus of what people who claim to be Christians actually believed in America. And as a result of his study, he he coined this term to kind of describe uh, what the general religious flavor was of American teenagers. And he, he coined this term, he calls it moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, hang with me for a second if that's going over your head. Basically, uh, what this is, is um, teenagers were taught that the, the whole point of it is basically to be moral to be a good person, that if I'm nice and polite, I don't steal, I don't swear, I, you know, I, don't sleep, I definitely don't sleep with my girlfriend, right? If, if, I, if I'm a good, nice, moral person, then I'll live a good, happy life and that God will accept me in the end, right? As good people who go to heaven when they die. And the therapeutic idea, uh, this is a type of belief that really has nothing to do with uh, repentance of sin and trusting in a good, gracious, sovereign God and following Jesus. It really has everything to do with me feeling good about myself, Uh, a subjective, warm, fuzzy feeling. That God is my, not Lord and King and Savior, but he's my cosmic therapist. Uh, The deism part of this phrase says, well, of course I believe in God, uh, but he's up there somewhere. He's not actually involved in my actual life. Uh, In fact, you know, God's really only here when I need him. And uh, I'll conveniently pray when I need my good therapist to make me feel good about myself again. Uh, has nothing to do with counting the cost of actually following Jesus, but again, domesticating Jesus to make him warm and fuzzy. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Jesus moves right in and, and he comforts those who are mourning. He comforts the broken. He comforts me and he comforts you. But he calls us to die. This kind of Christianity that is pervasive in our culture 
is radically different than what Jesus is calling us into in this passage. Here in uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 26, Jesus is calling for a total reorientation of our lives. He's not asking us to tweak a few things here and there, right? He's calling us into this glorious mission and a total counterintuitive hope. Uh, Here at Waterbrook Church, right, um, we are moving into a new season of ministry. Uh, Today, after the second service, we have a congregational meeting uh, to discuss a building expansion. Pastor Gabe has been uh, working hard to roll out our small group ministry. Uh, We have all sorts of college students and young adults here with us, and we're praying, we're praying that you catch a vision for gospel ministry and that wherever God sends you out, you will be zealously on fire for Jesus, that your life will count for the kingdom. There's people here who are uh, praying about not buying into the American dream, but but pursuing vocational ministry in some form or fashion. God is on the move here at Waterbrook Church, right? We have this, this new vision and mission statement that Bruce shared earlier. Waterbrook Church seeks to be a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family that is captivated by Jesus, compelled to love others, and called to make disciples to the glory of God. At the same time that all of this is happening, a lot of us feel a bit displaced, We're trying to find our way in, where we belong, where we fit. All of us, as we're being swept up into what God is doing here, we have this internal battle that's constantly going on. Do we take the risk and lean in, or do we retreat back to our safety zones? So what I want to do with our time this morning is show you three safety zones that we naturally recoil into, and then show you how Jesus sets us free so that we can live on mission as his kingdom citizens. So first, look with me here at verse 12 through 16. It's the safety zone of self-reliance. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In this passage, we see Jesus appoint the twelve apostles. Uh, These are the men that Jesus is choosing to continue his mission after his death and resurrection. Uh, The word apostle means sent one, and it carries with it the idea of being sent with the same authority of the one who sent them. Uh, Jesus clearly has his global kingdom mission in mind when he's calling these 12 apostles. Uh, He's looking beyond the grave. He's looking to his ascension when his his gospel will go forth and his kingdom will, will advance and his church will be established. And these are the men that he is calling to continue in that mission. He's choosing the future leaders of the church. These are the men who would be responsible for proclaiming the gospel beyond Jerusalem and establishing and governing the church after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended. Now, I want you to notice something about these guys. Unless they were written here in the Bible, we'd probably know nothing about them. These are totally normal, average, Joe Schmo, ordinary guys. There's nothing special about these guys. Jesus is calling these guys to a mission that is way over their heads and their abilities. 
The old saying rings true, right? Jesus doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. (laughs) These men will have to learn that the advancement of the mission is not dependent on them or their abilities. In fact, self-reliance will absolutely kill the mission. Uh, Their qualifications and ours are not in our abilities, our charisma, our natural talents. Our qualifications are in the fact that Jesus Christ has called us into a relationship with him and it is his mission and his gospel and his power. I love Acts 4.13. (laughs) It says now when they, that's the people who are opposing the gospel movement after in the early church, it says that when they saw the, the boldness of Peter and John, Look at this. And perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know what I love about our family here at Waterbrook? Anyone who comes in here pretty quickly should say something like, oh, these are just common people. These are normal people. There's nothing special about these guys. But they're singing their hearts out. They're preaching their guts out. They actually believe what they're saying. Jesus must be here. Our only hope in the advancement of the gospel in our neighborhoods and in the nations, listen, is if Jesus Christ alone does the work. When we start to venture out and seek to make disciples, Right, we will quickly run into all sorts of situations that we simply can't solve. Uh, there's going to be relationships that people are in that you can't fix. There's going to be marriages so broken and shattered that there's nothing you can say or do. There's going to be addicts that you can't rescue. There's going to be people that you simply cannot change. There's going to be wayward kids you can't persuade. And at the bottom of it all, you know what you're going to find out? You're going to find that your own heart is often so cold and so unengaged, and you are absolutely powerless even over your own heart. We dive into the deep end, and we very quickly realize we can't swim. Listen, the, the mission of Jesus is absolutely impossible for any one of us to accomplish in our own strength according to our own wisdom. We simply don't have what it takes. We can't raise the dead. We can't open blind eyes. We can't change hearts. Our reason and our rationality and our forceful words and our persuasion won't move a heart one inch. So what do we do? Do we just retreat back into our uh, comfort zones? Do we retreat back into uh, the places in our lives where we actually feel competent? Do we retreat back into the place in our lives where we can actually rely on ourselves? Maybe we're really good at our jobs and so we just give all our energy to our work. We're comfortable there. We can actually rely on our own wisdom and strength there. Maybe it's our hobbies. And we're just gonna spend all of our time with our hobbies because we're competent there. We can actually rely on our own abilities there. Of course, that's not what we do. So what do we do? What do we do as a church and as individuals? It's, it's obvious, but it's absolutely crucial. We need to depend on Jesus. We need to depend on Jesus in prayer and in community. Uh, in this section, right, we see Jesus himself dependent on prayer. In verse 12, it says he spent all night in prayer before he chose the 12 apostles. And later on in Luke's gospel, you know what you're going to see the apostles asking Jesus? 
Teach us to pray. So Jesus invites us into a life of abiding prayer, right? Through his death and resurrection, he tore the veil that separates us from God. We now have bold access into the throne of grace. We can enter into God's throne at our time of need, which is always, by the way. He, he invites us into a life of abiding prayer because it's in prayer that we take hold of the promises of God. It's, it's in prayer that we remember that God is near and that God is for us. It's, it's in prayer that we recognize that I'm not in control, but there's one who is, and he can do absolutely anything that he pleases. It's in prayer that my heart is turned away from self-reliance to dependence upon God. Uh, the other day, one of our elders, Mike Dawkins, he sent us this, this quote by J.C. Ryle that says it really well. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, prayer is the mightiest engine God has placed in our hands. It is the best weapon to use in every difficulty and the surest remedy in every trouble. It is the key that unlocks the treasury of promises and the hand that draws forth grace and help in time of need. Show me a growing Christian, a going forward Christian, a flourishing Christian, and sure am I, he is one that speaks often with his Lord. He tells Jesus everything. Waterbrook, listen, we need to be a church that is prayerfully dependent on Jesus. As individuals, we need to spend time alone with God every day. And and corporately, we need to be a church that prays together. The, The heartbeat of any ministry, of any gospel advancement, of any discipleship takes needs to be prayer. We simply don't have what it takes. Every Sunday at 8 o'clock in the morning, we have people praying downstairs, people praying online. You are welcome into those areas. Uh, when, we, when we gather together on Sundays, prayer should be normal with one another. When we, when we say what's going on with our lives, we should say, let's pray right now together. When we're talking and texting throughout the week, we should be praying together. We are a family that seeks the face of Jesus together. We need to be in prayer as a family if we're ever going to see this gospel mission go forward but not only do we need to be dependent on God in prayer we need to be dependent on God in community I love how this passage uh, Jesus doesn't just call one apostle or two apostles or three apostles he calls a group of apostles he calls 12 apostles he's forming a new community here the number 12 should actually uh, trigger in our minds the 12 tribes of Israel Uh, Jesus as the true Israel, the faithful Israel, the, the one who did all that Israel couldn't do. He's, he's calling a new Israel together, a renewed Israel under his lordship, right? Uh, he is creating a new community, a new family, a new nation, in a sense, in the church, right? Uh, the nation of Israel as a whole was called to be a light to the nations. The The nation of Israel as a whole was to display to the nations what it looked like to be in covenant relationship with God. Now the the church is is the renewed Israel. So as a local church, together, corporately, not individually, but together as a family, we're called the body. We're called to advance the mission together. Not one of us is called into Lone Ranger mission. Not one of us is called into uh, discipling people individually. This is a community effort. This is why here at Waterbrook we have a plurality of elders. We don't believe it should be a one-man show. This is why we have a plurality plurality of pastors. We don't believe this is a one-man show. We are in this together as a family. Jesus Christ established his church as a body and he gave gifts to the body. Because, you know, Paul says that I can't say that I have no need for the ear. We need each other. We're dependent on each other. 
I think this is why, you know, as a youth pastor, uh, student ministry is so important, right? Parents are the primary disciple makers of their kids, and yet we as a church have the responsibility and the opportunity to partner with parents to reach and disciple the next generation. Uh, This is a community effort. No one is in this alone. Um, Those of you who are single, oh man, (laughs) so often feel like you don't belong. You're needed here. You're so valued here. You are so honored here. The church needs you, singles. You're not a second-class Christian. You're not on the sidelines. The church needs you. We are dependent on one another in community. You belong here. You belong here. That's why nurseries is important. That's why welcoming and greetings is important. We are in this together as a church. We're dependent on God and prayer. We're dependent on God in community, if the advancement of this mission is going forward, we need to get out of our safety zones of self-reliance and lean in. Jesus is welcoming us into that. He's never called us to fulfill his mission by relying on ourselves. He invites all of us into mission because he is the one who will accomplish it all. Number two, the safety zone of self-protection. Look with me here at verses 17 and 19. 17 through 19. One second. It says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. So this is a a summary section of the ministry of Jesus. Notice the three groups of people involved here. You have the apostles, you have the large crowd of disciples, and you have the large multitude of people who are coming from all over the place, right? In this section, you have believers and you have unbelievers. You have people who are seeking to follow Jesus, and you have people who are, you know, it's a a large multitude of people. They're, They're seeking, they're questioning, they're not sure what they think of Jesus. Jesus' popularity is growing big time. People from all over the place are coming to hear him preach and to be healed by him. The amount of needs in this passage is absolutely overwhelming. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. Um, It says, And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. The people who were coming to Jesus... (laughs) weren't like well-put-together people. Uh, These were broken people. Uh, These were people with with deep needs. They were people a lot like myself. I don't know if, (laughs) you know, you were well-put-together when Jesus rescued you, but I was a total disaster. I was the kind of person that people would intentionally avoid. I was the kind of person who who honestly didn't think Jesus could possibly love me. I'd messed up too much. I'd hurt too many people. I'd gone too far. I'd crossed the line too many times. It may seem obvious, but I want you to notice something. All who come to Jesus receive his love and grace. No one's excluded. 
Jesus lavishes his love on everyone who comes to him. The the posture of Jesus is overwhelmingly gracious. Jesus is leaning in. Jesus leans in. When we think about living on mission and making disciples, we are we're praying for unbelievers to come to know Jesus. We're, we're praying for those who are seeking answers to encounter Jesus. We're, we're praying for the broken and the lost and the screw-ups like me to, to come and know Jesus. We, we long for people to taste and experience the free grace of Jesus in the gospel. The forgiveness of sins, the new birth, free justification, experiencing the friendship of Jesus. Oh, we long for that. Jesus longs for that. Listen, Jesus makes himself accessible. He isn't hiding. Jesus longs to make himself accessible to your neighbors and your coworkers, your family members who don't know him, the broken people in your life. Jesus makes himself known through you and through me, which means that he has specifically placed you in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your friend group, at your school, in your sports teams, in your hobby groups. Jesus has specifically placed you where he has placed you for the purpose of making himself known to those who desperately need him. Which means that we're going to find ourselves in a lot of messy situations. If Jesus is moving into the broken, if Jesus is moving into those who are in need, if Jesus is making himself accessible to all who would come to him, and he's using us to do that, that means that we're moving into the mess, folks. If we're seeking to be conduits of God's grace in the lives of other people, that means that we will be getting into the mess and the muck of people's lives. And when we get into the mess and the muck of people's lives, uh, we have a couple options. One is to realize, man, I'm going to get hurt here, and so I'm just going to protect myself. It's a lot more comfortable over here. Uh, I'm actually quite vulnerable here for betrayal and being taken advantage of and all. You know what's interesting about this passage? I believe that out of the large multitude of people who came to, to be healed by Jesus, some of these people were the very people later on who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Man, if we lean in like this, if we're overwhelmingly gracious like this, we, we might get hurt. So that's one option. Or we can lean in. Like Jesus has leaned in. Like Jesus didn't withhold. Like Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Like he did for me and he did for you. We can lean in. But when we do that, we realize a couple things really fast. Number, the first thing we realize is that not only is it the other people who are broken, but man, we realize how broken we are. We, we realize that we're far worse than we thought. We realize how desperately broken we ourselves are. We realize that we aren't the heroes, that, that we need the saving grace of Jesus too. When I lean in and God brings me into messy places with messy, broken people, I quickly realize how impatient I am. I quickly realize how prideful I am. I quickly real. it's so ridiculous that I actually think I have this thing figured out a little bit. <laughs> you know, I respond sinfully to being sinned against. My natural inclination is to withdraw rather than lean in. Right? I'm, I'm so unlike Jesus in so many ways. I realize how absolutely desperate I am for Jesus to rescue me. I mean, when we lean in and we get into the mess and the muck and the mire with people, the, the cute saying 
that we're simply beggars showing other beggars where bread is found becomes very true. The second thing we realize is that's exactly where Jesus is. Jesus loves the sinners, the wounded, the broken, and the messy. Listen, Jesus is high and holy. He is exalted. He is absolutely, utterly different than we are in so many ways. He lives far beyond us, but he also lives down low in the slums. Jesus is a God, listen, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the God who goes low. Jesus is the God who dwells among the broken, the messy, right? Jesus is the one who does his best work in the darkest places. Listen, our reflex of jumping into self-protection mode prevents us from sweet communion with Jesus. Our reflex into self-protection mode will, will keep us from seeing Jesus do his best work. We'll, we'll miss the joy of seeing lives changed. We'll, we'll miss the joy of see, seeing people come to faith in Christ. We'll, we'll miss the joy of seeing rebels transformed. We won't see Jesus change us and we won't see Jesus change others. Jesus does his best work down low and if we're constantly avoiding that, we won't ever see him do it. There's a sweet communion with Jesus down low. So when we go down low, friends, this is where Jesus is. That's where Jesus lives. And where Jesus is is where he does his mighty works of grace. Listen, Jesus is inviting us out of self-protection and into deep communion with him. That's where we see him do his best work. Lastly, let's look at verses 20 through 26. It's the safety zone of self-secured comforts. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So in the last section, we saw that people came to be healed by Jesus and to hear Jesus. The, the predominant note of the primacy of preaching is obvious in the, in the life of Jesus. And what we have for the rest of chapter six here is, is what's called the Sermon on the Plain, right? So in Matthew chapter five through seven, we have uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew's account of this. So uh, if you read the two, just real quick side note, if you read the two, you're gonna notice some similarities and some differences. Uh, what Luke is doing here, I believe, is he is uh, compiling the common sayings of Jesus and putting them together. Remember, he's trying to convince Theophilus that it's worth the cost. He's trying to convince a man who is uh, respected and esteemed in the culture that the way of Jesus is radically different and it's worth it. And so that's what we're seeing here in Luke, uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Plain. And in these first six verses of the Sermon on the Plain, 
we see Jesus pronouncing divine blessings and divine woes. He's describing two different kinds of people here. Uh, The word blessing means happy or flourishing in such a way that's not dependent on circumstances. Uh, Jesus is describing uh, the truly good life according to Jesus. The word woe is a prophetic utterance of pity and pain for those who will face misfortune or judgment. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that money or food or laughing or having a good reputation disqualifies you from God's divine blessing. I mean, there are lots of examples in Scripture that would uh, clearly confirm that's not the case, right? What Jesus is saying is woe to you who trust in these things for your sense of well-being. He's saying woe to you who seek to secure your own sense of stability by your money. Woe to you who is living simply for the satisfaction of what this life has to offer. Woe to you who who laughs at the brokenness of the world rather than weeping over it. Woe to you who live in such a way where all you care about is what others think about you. Woe to you who are refusing God's divine blessing of grace and are seeking to build your own little kingdom here on earth. Woe to you who are seeking to hold everything together in your own strength. You're just building your own kingdom. You're securing your own comfort. You're just... You're doing whatever it takes to hold it all together. Jesus says, woe to you who does that. Woe to you who demand that you be the one who seeks to secure a comfortable life for yourself. Woe to you because it's also temporary and fleeing. Woe to you because it's here one day and gone the next. Woe to you if that's where your source of well-being is, you are sorely mistaken. Do you feel that? We live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with these things. I mean, the suburbs, I live in the suburbs, so I'm not not knocking us, but this is a culture that we live in where getting a good job, making lots of money, getting a nice, comfortable house, coasting into eternity is the whole point of everything. Jesus is saying that the truly good life, and you can take it or leave it, We don't necessarily run away from these things. We just don't need these things. Jesus is saying that you can actually flourish no no matter the circumstances if your hope is in the right place. The good life is a life that has been so gripped by the promises of God in the gospel. Uh, The good life is a life that looks to Christ when you're down and out because yours is the kingdom of God. The good life is the life that hungers and thirsts for Christ now for our true satisfaction will be eternally filled in him. The good life is a life that doesn't ignore the sin and the brokenness of the world and act flippantly about everything. We weep and we mourn, but, but with hope because there, we know there's coming a day when Jesus himself will wipe away every tear. All the brokenness, all the sin in this world will be done away with. There is coming a new day so we can, we can weep now, but in hope because we shall laugh. The good life is set free from people-pleasing. Oh, imagine not caring what people think because you're so captivated by Jesus. Oh, imagine the burdens that just come off when you don't care what your neighbor might think because you love Jesus. Imagine the burdens that come off when you're not so gripped by the opinions of others because you're so obsessed with Jesus. Freedom. That's the good life. Friends, 
these verses are telling us something so clear and foundational. We don't have to secure our own comforts because on the cross, Jesus became poor so that one day we might become rich. On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst so that we would be eternally satisfied. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we will never be excluded from the Father. You see, Jesus became everything that we deserve so that we could gain everything he has gained. I say this often, but our greatest problem is already solved. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin on the cross so that we would never have to. By faith, we are forgiven and free. And listen, our greatest dreams are just right around the corner. Notice the you shalls in verse 21. Jesus says, you shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. The future is guaranteed. Our future is incredibly bright. We have nothing to fear. Uh, Listen, we don't have to secure a perfectly comfortable life here and now because he has secured it for us forever. It seems like a a great risk to go out for Jesus. But in the end, we realize the only risk is not. The greatest risk is holding on to this temporary life. The, The truest place of safety is not our little safety zones. Those actually are our danger zones. And the truest place of safety is in right leaning in where Jesus is going. Uh, so, the life that Jesus calls us into is, is radically counterintuitive. We actually don't drift into this way of life. Uh, everything, is, everything in us naturally wants to recoil into our safety zones. Listen, we need each other. We need to remind one another that there is more joy in following Jesus than trying to maintain our own safe lives. Jesus isn't calling us into a, a life of self-reliance. He's inviting us into communion with him and one another. Jesus isn't calling us into a life of self-protection. He will always be with us, even in the most devastating circumstances. Jesus isn't calling us into a life of self-secured comforts. He has won our eternal joy, and our comfort is guaranteed. So, uh, for some of us, maybe the next step for you is uh, taking the risk and getting into a small group. The thought of sharing your life with other people is absolutely terrifying. Jesus is saying to you, you can trust me. I'll be with you. Maybe some other of us, of us, Jesus is inviting us to pray for our neighbors and coworkers. Who is it that he's put in your life that he wants to make himself known to? And that terrifies us, thinking about what they might think. We might get rejected. Now, what are my coworkers going to think if I'm the Jesus freak or whatever? Jesus is saying to you, no matter how messy it gets, you can trust me. I'll be with you. Other of us have been hoping in the comforts of this world. Are we spending our time getting more money, more possessions, more things? Jesus is inviting us into a life of radical generosity to loosen our grips on the things of this world. Uh, Maybe that means you open your home and show hospitality. Maybe that means you give generously with your finances. Maybe it's your time that you're holding so tightly to and you need to loosen up your schedule so you can be available to others. Jesus is saying you can let go of your grip on securing a comfortable life for yourself because I own everything and I've already secured it for you. Waterbrook Church, we're in this together. 
Jesus is moving us into a new stage of life together. It's exciting. It's glorious. We can't do it ourselves. We are absolutely dependent upon him. And good news, he longs to do it. He longs to do it. So let us remind one another that we have a glorious calling upon us that Jesus is welcoming us into. Let's continue to remind one another of the grace and greatness of Jesus Christ that we might continually fight to come out of our safety zones and into his glorious mission for his glory alone. Amen? All right, let's pray. Uh, Dear God, you are so worth it. Jesus, we're reminded that you didn't stay in your... (laughs) in your comfort zone. You left the glories of heaven and took on human flesh. You dwelt among us and you suffered greater than we could ever imagine. The wrath of God was borne upon you that we might never have to receive that. So we thank you and we praise you, Jesus. Would you set us free, oh God, that we might follow you faithfully. Help us now to respond well to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.